I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. Human beings are not the problem, we are the solution. Or at least we can be if we wake up to the operating systems we ourselves created to dominate nature and one another. It's time to grow up and take responsibility for the mess. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the co-founder of Kickstarter and the author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world, Yancey Strickler. Change is not a sprint, um, but change is also not a marathon. It's a relay. Like we all are running a leg. Even if I'm successful, I probably won't happen in my lifetime. Uh, so how do I feel about that? Yancey will be helping us move from a personal short-term approach to playing the collective game. It's time to challenge the individual. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. We've got a special event coming up. Team Human is being canonized by Reverend Billy in the Church of Stop Shopping. Sunday afternoon, December 15th, at their Earth Riot concert at Joe's Pub in New York City. Team Human subscribers can come for free. Just email team at teamhuman.fm for your tickets. Otherwise, get them at revbilly.com. That's just one of the many advantages of becoming a Team Human subscriber, like Narween Otto, Sita Reeves, Colin Berman, Jeho Shin, Crystal Rutland, and Leon Rossiter. Thank you for supporting this project. You, too, can subscribe and support us by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. 
We're also serializing the entirety of the Team Human Manifesto one week at a time for the next two years at medium.com slash team dash human. Read a section a week until you can't take it anymore and then go find a copy of the book. It's short. It only took me five hours to read the whole thing out loud for the audio version. So it should only take you three or four hours to read in its entirety and it will make a difference. It says pretty much everything I was put here to share. It's my life's work in Cliff Notes brevity. And the whole thing, this whole team human project is organized around the idea that digital technology has inappropriately become the subject of our time, sort of in the way that Trump has become the subject of politics. The more we focus on him or the more we focus on digital, kind of the worse off we are at remembering what we're really here for. Digital has become more than just the topic of so many articles and panels and talks and books. It's as if technology is serving as the very focus and direction of society. But the more we look to our devices and platforms and networks for some understanding of our collective situation, the more untethered we become from the real world in which we live. We tend to look at technology as if it were the subject of our concerns, and then we see human society, human beings ourselves, as the objects being acted upon. And this is partly because we no longer use our technology so much as we experience our technologies using us. So with every swipe of our fingers, our smartphone gets smarter about us and we get dumber about it. And Digital platforms with their illusion of, of cleanliness and hermetically sealed purity, they hide the externalities even better than traditional industrial age businesses. But the human slavery, the environmental destruction, the social alienation and economic oppression and civic collapse that digital technologies engender, they are just as real. And moreover, now they're happening at scale. And the inwardly turned campuses of these tech monopolies, they keep their workers focus on the code and off the impact. I mean, how can some company live by the credo, don't be evil, if it's not even looking beyond its web page metrics? Likewise, when our evaluation of all of the power dynamics in a digital age, when that relies on the analysis of the companies themselves, or the, the affordances they're embedding into their platforms, or, or even when we do a structural critique of surveillance and business, we lose sight of the bigger picture. You know, we end up trying to understand tech through the lens of the technology companies that we're trying to see. And in the process, we make them, the companies and their technologies, even more central to the story. And then we relegate ourselves, we humans, to the background, as if we're mere externalities to their story. And the alternative is to look beyond Silicon Valley for an entirely new perspective on what these technologies really are and what they can do. And I got reminded of all this because of a new book I read called Beyond the Valley by a Team Human member, Ramesh Srinivasan, who was actually back on episode 42, exactly 100 episodes ago, telling us about his travels that he was about to embark on to witness firsthand 
the impact of algorithms on electorates, of ride-hailing apps on African cities, of smartphones on indigenous Mexicans, and blockchain on the environment. And by venturing beyond Silicon Valley, he found rampant but underreported and actively camouflage devastation. Digital tech companies are killing people. They're enslaving children. They're undermining democracy, ruining economies, destroying the environment with full knowledge of what they're doing. But what he also found were people fighting back, subverting the intended functions of technologies to empower themselves and their communities. He went from Oaxaca, Mexico, where activists were building community-owned digital networks that promote the solidarity and autonomy of an indigenous people, to sub-Sahara Africa, where people and small businesses were leveraging the power of networks not to compete, but to collaborate and exchange value with each other. He found a 3D printing business that was set up on a street corner in Nairobi, producing everything from household appliances to medical devices. And the whole thing was cobbled together from wires and circuits that were salvaged by families from toxic waste dumps. And they work better. These 3D printers, they work better than the crap coming out of China because they're assembled by people who understand the damp, hot climate in which this equipment will actually have to operate. And he found a Kenyan mobile money system called the M-Pesa, which replaces banks with networks of local agents like sugarcane merchants and food stands and private buses. So by subverting the extractive intentions of the tech companies, these people and places are staging nothing short of a revolution against the dominance of global corporate capitalism, local bottom-up, community-owned, sustainable, and prosperous. The more we learn about these efforts, the better we in the West, or worse, those who've retreated almost entirely online, can begin to model some of these same approaches to restoring our collective agency and avoiding civilization-scale catastrophe. By reporting from the ground up, Ramesh reminded me and hopefully reminds all of us that in a world of digital domination, we are all indigenous people and it's high time we act that way. I'm delighted to welcome a very special guest today, one of the progenitors of crowdfunding, the co-founder of Kickstarter, and author of a new book, This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World, Yancey Strickler. You were doing things before you kind of thunk up Kickstarter. You were already doing tech, right? I was was a music journalist. I had a record label. I was trying to find my way and then met Perry with Kickstarter and... And Charles, but it was like a, I had no intention or desire to be an entrepreneur. Like that was never, never in my dreams, you know, starting a record label was as far as I yeah. could imagine just cause I was like, I like, I like your album. Let's and it do it. It doesn't seem in your, in your, I don't know if I was going to be a, a Jungian archetype person, I don't look at you and see entrepreneur, you know, I'm going to run to Y Combinator yeah, and get a big yeah, valuation. Yeah, yeah. 
But in a way, that's what saved your ass, too. I mean, and I've used you as a case study in pretty much every book. You, well, it's like there's like three case studies we can use. <laughs> I know, we all have the same Wikipedia, ones. Yeah. Kickstarter, you know, there's like a, Linux. There you go. There's the three. But did you get money on great terms from patient investors or did you get money from investors and just sort of piss them off long term because they didn't get big returns? We really just raised not a lot of money. And we're profitable early on. And then we had like the three years while I was CEO, we paid dividends and were able to like help people start to earn back. But our story from the beginning was like, it's just not gonna, it's just not gonna be like that. You know, I would tell like potential hires, this is not like your down payment for your house job. You know, if you want that, you should go to Google or something. But this is more like you co-wrote a hit song in the eighties and you get a residual check every year for as long as the song keeps playing. And to me, like what's wrong with that as a model for success? I was enjoying the new Simon Sinek book, Infinite Game, about finite mm-hmm. games, infinite games. He talks about the goal, like all of life is an infinite game. The only winning an infinite game is just survival, continuing to be in the game. Right. And well, Jonathan Cars, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's basing on, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a riff on a riff on that. And I, I know I lived with that book for so long and look at it really for everything. It's what pushes you toward open source and open API. And, and the fear, I guess, is, Will there be mana tomorrow? You know, I mean, it's from the Bible, but I'm going to store my mana now because how much do I have to extract to feel safe? That That's where what's normal keeps changing and enough keeps changing. And, you know, in, in the book, I write about intrinsic and extrinsic goals. And when people achieve extrinsic goals like money or power, whatever it is, when they reach the promised land, they find it's not enough. And so the bar gets raised again. Right. And they actually become less happy as they reach goals because they realize their goal was not real. It's always fascinated me about the whole notion of compensation. Hmm. It's like, oh, you're going to do this job. Okay. And what's my compensation? Why do you want to be compensated if this Hmm. is a job that you love? Hmm. I mean, you could be rewarded, I guess. You can be kept alive. But I mean, for, for most people, the work is not fun. Yeah, most most, <laughs> most jobs are not fun. For the average job, how many days a year are fun? It's like eight, you know, right. I, don't, I don't know what, what is that. I am not broke, you know, but I, I have never been, ever been financially motivated, I think because I grew up without money and I just always assumed I would never have it. So I was well, afraid of it. Well, if you became a musician, you basically were betting on bankruptcy at that point. <laughs> right, right. Perpetual right. penury. Yeah, yeah. When I was a music <laughs> critic, even worse, even, right. even, lo- even lower on the totem pole. But, you know, it is true. I mean, people don't realize, I mean, they think if you have your name in what spin, I guess not spin that Rolling Stone, that you're living in a penthouse somewhere. And it's like, no, you're living in a basement if you're lucky. There was an interview that really changed how I saw the world in 2001. It was a pitchfork interview with David Berman of the Silver Jews, who just killed himself a couple months ago. A great artist. But the interviewer just asked him, how much money do you make? And David Berman answers. He's like, $25,000 $25,000 a year, $30,000 a year. And at that time I, I made about $20,000 a year. And like, I admired this guy and I'm like, I can't believe that we are basically at the same level because I'm like dying for the chance to pay $20 to see him play a show for me. But yet 
we're in the same financial category, even though I look at him as something different. And, and he is, right? I mean, there is, there is more that he has than I had at that moment. But the idea that the, the financial rewards of what I saw as like the most epic thing you could do in the world, that they had so little relation to, yeah, I don't know, what I imagined they would be. I know. I mean, and in some ways, that's, I would think that's part of the motivation of the stroke of genius behind Kickstarter was to take financialization out of the picture. Correct. So you no longer have people invest in someone speculatively thinking that they're going to make money someday. And because it's so speculative, I'm going to get a whole chunk of your friggin' money because I'm speculating on you and just say, well, wait a minute. What if we just take a matchmaking program and say, what kind of products do you want? What kind of products are they making? Put these together. The- it's just, it's imagining money as fuel. It's right. just be like it, it, Kickstarter is like a financial conversion platform of converting money to albums and zines well, and it's all also sorts a of time machine. Things. It's yeah. a way you can pay for the zine or album you want now. Buy it now. And if as long as you are okay waiting, we don't need any of these people taking the 90% out of it. Uh, yeah, I always felt like, you know, despite the fact that every Kickstarter project has a giant scoreboard of money on it, <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be what it's yeah. about, but it is fundamentally thinking about money in a, in a different way. Probably not from an average person who's not in the market, who's not thinking about those sorts of things, but certainly the dominant ethos of capital today. Well, there's no capitals. Yeah. There's no capitalist yeah. in it. The, the, the idea was like, can we create a little miniature economy separated from everything else where there's are just different reasons to justify the existence of an idea? And, you know, we just felt very strongly that, that there was truth in that and, and that that was possible. But like the investors we met with early on with a couple of exceptions, like that, you know, no one bought that idea. They're like, why would anyone <laughs> give any money if they're not going to get money off of it? We're like, well, that's just how you think. That's not right. how other people think. That's just your, your worldview. I mean, even when you go to a band that you like and you realize they're not getting much at the door, you sometimes you buy their merch. It's not like you're going to wear their t-shirt all the time, but you're kind of supporting the effort. I mean, get a button or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, it's why to go to a show, you know, it's just, it's just to give that direct financial support. And if I think of how many people I listen to thousands of times on Spotify or whatever streaming services and the fact that I've never paid them directly a dime is just wild to me as someone who yeah. like comes from the scene who bought record, you know, that was like, that was my lifeblood was, it was a direct engagement with artists. And now, now because of good UI and a seemingly infinite catalog, I'm content to be a step removed. Yeah. And I would argue, although this is getting a little too spiritual, but I would argue that the MP3 ification of the music also kind of relinquishes your body of the sense of having gotten something from them. It's just, mm. they become part of this wallpaper of yeah. digital noise. Yeah. And it's no longer like when you put on an album and here, the best example would be like a Neil Young. Right. It's like, He's doing this for me. I have a human connection. I feel I owe him something for that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the music industry was the first one to go through the digital shock and like musicians were the first one to find their income fall. And it's sort of come back again with a mix of things, especially for people on top. And I, you know, I was, I remember that I gave a talk once, uh, you know, first they came for the musicians and I said nothing because I'm not a musician. Well, I even think about, um, (laughs) I even, because I didn't like them anyway. Uh, you know, if I think about like, I, I moved to New York in 2000 at the time there were record stores everywhere. Then the MP3 and Napster happened and then record stores started closing in droves. The first ones who got out of business were HMV, Virgin, the major chains. 
the ones that had no purpose other than being a store where you buy a product right. that happens to be a CD. And the, you know, the, the record store still existing as Academy Records, which is like jazz, classical, and like obscure stuff. Other music lasted as long as, as long, they could. But Bleaker Bob's was gone. Everybody. There's still, yeah, yeah, there's still revolution in the West Village. But like, you yeah. know, the, the ones that lasted had a purpose, had created some sense of meaning. Meaning or place or relationship. I mean, I knew Josh at other music and that's same. Like, yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, I'm going to sit with this, oh, stand with this genius for five minutes. It's like, oh, if you like this, you're going to like this, 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 and that. Yeah. You know? His mixes were so good. Intense, so good. yeah. I mean, the other thing, and I don't want to keep dwelling on the past, but, but it still exists. I mean, someone decided Kickstarter was only going to be a certain size company mm. and not get bigger. Mm. Was that you who decided that? I remember I read a paper by a biologist that talked about the golden ratio of a size of an organism to like its gestation period. It's like, if you, if you know how big an organism is, they could immediately tell you all sorts of things about its physicality and how its long life it and goes death. from eating yeah. to pooping. Yeah. To, like yeah. Ev- everything yeah. could be derived from just its size. Yeah. And so this person then tries to apply the same model to human beings. And he demonstrated that if you knew one or two stats, like about a city that you, he, they could tell you how many hospitals there were, how many gas stations there were, all these properties. And it was like remarkably accurate. And so then he tried to apply the same thing to companies. And he has this, he had this theory that, um, it was that when a company got to 50 people, the company began to, uh, they had to spend more and more of the resources to support the actions of the company itself, which ultimately meant it was beginning its decline. And that once you reach a 50 person point, your resources were no longer focused on whatever the point of the company is. And they're focused on the survival of the company and that you will eventually eat yourself. When I read this, we were like 26 people and I shared it with Perry and Charles, my co-founders, and we all love grand theories of the yeah. universe <laughs> that could just make everything easy. And I, I remember once being in a conference room in our old office in Lower East Side and like literally on a whiteboard trying to write down, all right, what are the last 24 roles to add to be our 50 person company? And, uh, and like sketched it out. And then it was right around that moment that Kickstarter hit the critical mass of like suddenly became mainstream. And then, you know, you just have so many emails coming in and everyone's so overworked. You're like, well, we've got to hire to help this and this. And then, and then it broke down, but that, that instinct to be small and viewing a growth in headcount as being a cost, but also just like a, I don't know, just a, ch- a challenge to self-actualization, right. a, cha- a challenge to, you know, just makes you more protective. There's all sorts of subtle things it does to you. That, that was always a strong instinct. And even, even the decision, even the focus on being profitable and operating in the black, which we did starting our second year, I always thought of that as like, it's so hard to make good decisions anyway. Making good decisions with like the emotional pressure of financial or existential stress, like in what universe am I going to, am I going to rise to my best with all those things? Like, how am I going to see truth at a moment where five different voices are screaming at me for five different reasons? And so there was a way of these things was like, how do we, how do we protect ourselves from our human weaknesses? How do we we view them with love and acknowledge them and try to own them and address Uh them and incorporate them and limit our ability to make bad decisions? You start optimizing for kind of fun and meaning and enjoyment instead of whatever. And then you start looking at, well, this whole idea of winning, of competing, of becoming a platform monopoly and having no other players is really a 
pretty false goal. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really small goal. I want to be the only pizzeria in the world. Yeah. It's like, why do that? Yeah. But it's, it's pervasive. And yeah. as, as founders, you know, Perry and Charles and I, we, we never, we never cared about competition. Like they didn't ignite any neurons in any sort right. of interesting way. So you didn't like have a secret, let's kill Indiegogo room. No, no, I, I more <laughs> just didn't care. But, but the staff, the staff who were more, out in the world who were talking to creators who were saying, why not? Why you instead of them? Like there was more of that. And the staff, there was a greater desire for like, why aren't we, why aren't we taking swings? Why aren't we whatever? And I was just like, I just don't, I just don't think it matters. Well, there were different models too. Totally. I mean, if once you're in it, you see, I mean, I was like an advisor for meetup and eventually you know, Facebook comes and says, we're going to start doing location-based things. So Meetup goes, ah, uh, we better get acquired by someone really strong. So they got bought by WeWork. And now, I don't know, it feels like they're going to maybe get shut down or yeah, transform beyond recognition. You know, so it's like this moment where I feel like the companies that tried to do that, this is like, there's another moment of truth coming up mm-hmm. for all of them. There was this notion that the web is going to be where we're going to experiment with every business model. We're going to experiment with every structure. We're going to like, it's the new world. It's the John Perry Barlow of like, mm. everything is everything. And then faster than anyone imagined, it just got winnowed down to like, it just works like this. And now we seem stuck in a world where data is used against us and to exploit us. You know, it's all about, you know, retention and whatever forms of maximization. And, you know, we were still in that era where it's like, what all could this be? And let's, let's put everything on the table. Right. And, and I, you wrote, and you basically wrote your book. This could be our future. This could be our future manifesto for a more generous world in response to that. And there's two things about this book. For me, the explanation of where we are is less valuable only because that's what I've been working 20 years to try to describe yep. venture capital and extraction and surveillance yep. capitalism and these business models and growth-based capitalism and extraction and all that. The part that then for me gets interesting, which is where I don't go, you see where I go after that is therefore we must reconnect as human beings, establish <laughs> right, rapport, right, right. find our true values. And, you know, yeah. But you, as someone who's actually been out in the world and, and tried to marry the values of a mm. music writer with mm. those of, of capitalism, yeah. actually are, are bringing kind of some best practices to yeah. the fore as well. If I was just writing a book that was just going to throw shade on the world around us, yeah. like that's not, you know, I, I don't think that's adding to the conversation. Oh, it, and, I and, did. I had it. <laughs> well, give me a good tenor. You've, 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 <laughs> you've done the work. You've done the work. I could just, the first half of my book could just say, see Rushkoff. Yeah, exactly. You Critical are, thinking. You Critical are thinking. cited. I do cite oh, you. I, beautiful. Uh, and, and, but this book is based on a thesis that the way we define self-interest is too narrow and the way we define value is too narrow and that self-interest is defined according to this game theory concept of self-maximization and that only sees the world according to our now me desires, what Mm -hmm. I want and need right now. And to me, the only way the world around us makes sense is if we see that that's how, that's the default setting it's running on. But, you know, I, I introduced this concept I call bentoism, like Mm -hmm. a bento box that argues that our self-interest is not just one compartment, it's four. It's now me, what I want and need right now. It's also future me, what the older, wiser, grayer version of ourself would tell us to do. The one who lived up to their commitments and had the obituary you wish you could have earned that. And then there's now us, the people we rely on and who rely on us, our, 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 our social dependencies. And there's future us, the next generation, our children and everyone else's children. And so every decision we make 
impacts all those spaces, now me, future me, now us, future us, all those spaces heavily influence every choice we make. But we're currently in a place where we believe now me is real and rational and everything else is emotional and less real. And so we keep trying to say, address the climate crisis, looking for a solution that helps our now me be better, but that's just not possible. Like, because the climate crisis is not a now me problem. It's a future me problem. It's a future us problem that we have to solve by thinking about those spaces in a more clear way. Now me is the ancestor of the future us. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. Future us comes. It comes. It doesn't stay. It doesn't stay there forever. And the climate. We're watching the climate crisis slowly go from future to you know to now. But you know, from all behavioral finance, people are terrible. I mean, even they look at their own retirement self as some old dude. Totally. Who's totally. someone else? But this isn't. But this isn't universally true. Like this. I don't think this is like ingrained in in humans, like from the beginning, right. if it's you not look Navajo at, culture, no, it? no. And if you look at Eastern cultures, <laughs> right. like there's a, I forget his name, but there's a, the first person to, to really study national values was a IBM HR executive who ha- was conducting surveys of like IBM employees in 200, 200 offices that uh-huh. were in like 90 countries. He did this for 15 years and he suddenly realized that he had been asking people in all these different cultures, the same questions for many, many years. And that he, maybe it's possible to gleam some sort of unique characteristics of each culture. And so you end up finding like five or six dynamics on which people differ, like how they relate to power, their ability, like whether they want to be led or they feel like they want to make their own decisions. And one of the ones he discovered last was about long-termism and short-termism. And what's funny is all of his initial tests had focused on Western culture and the short-termism, long-termism had never shown up on a dimension because everyone seemed to be short-termist. And then he began studying Asian cultures and suddenly this long-termist like spectrum appeared because those cultures are, think far more that way. Like the notion of now in China is very different than how we think of it. Now is this thousand years. Now, now, (laughs) yeah. Now is like the, you know, the U S and British in the 19 teens, you know? And, and so I don't think that it, we Humans only have to be a certain way. I think our cultures teach us how, how to think. And I think we have an awareness of our future selves. We struggle to, to make good choices on their behalf. But, you know, my, my belief, and I've certainly found to be true in my own life, is that by putting it in something a little more tangible and, and a framework and a structure that is you can sort of learn and learn yourself through that it becomes more possible. And that's the bento box. And that's the bento box. So the bento, you know, in, in the book I write about how you can use the bento to, to dis, to define your values in each space. Like what does the future me want? What does the future us, what kind of future do I, am I looking for? Um, and uh, it's introduced as a decision-making tool, a way to true is creating self-coherence. Mm. Like there's the, Love, love, love the E.F. Schumacher book, Small is Beautiful. And and he writes so beautifully about the ways that uh, the modern world forces us to be in conflict with each other because man as producer and man as eater and man as, you know, member of their family are all the same person, but we treat them as different people and you make decisions on one that's bad for the other. Right. And we're just supposed to deal with this. Right. Or shift our role. Now you're consumer. Now you're employee. Now you're boss. Right. And so this level and you're of never like human. self-compromise, you know, he, he really has a lot of trouble with. And, uh, you know, the, the bentoist concept, bentoist way of thinking is a way to try to bring those things into more coherence, uh, give us the right to do that. So that, that's the bento as a personal tool. And then I also see it as like a, 
a way of seeing that allows us to consider where else value might be grown and supported. So I, there is future us value that we can build. That's sustainability. That's knowledge. That's like thinking of long terms. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's possible to create organizations and, and companies or whatever that create value explicitly in those spaces and that are focused, not just on their immediate needs and that we need institutions like that. A lot of the institutions that have supported Western society, education, you know, things like that government exists for those reasons, but even those institutions have been warped to only thinking about this very second. Right. There's a reversal in education. I talk about a lot where how, you know, education used to be there to compensate people for a life of work. Mm. So the worker could come home and read a novel, mm. you know, and now it's an extension of work. It's yeah. job training. Yeah. It's pre-work. Like, yeah. It is. So they, they, they moved it from the future us box into the maybe the future me box, yeah. you know, at yeah. best. Yeah. But totally. usually not. It's really the future them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Future, totally. Do future. STEM. Do STEM. We need more engineers. Do STEM. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And do we need more engineers? I have a feeling maybe we don't. I, yeah, I have, I have a theory <laughs> that that might be a, a less necessary job. You know, I have mixed feelings about the future of AI, like whether this, you know, if we can't get a car to drive itself, like what are the chances of, you know, general artificial intelligence doing something? But it seems like if it's going to do anything, engineering work would probably be what AI would be best at. You know, right. I, feel like, I feel like that's, it will replace the jobs of the people exactly. currently building it. We got to train game designers. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, <laughs> that's yeah. what we need. Create more micro incentive structures <laughs> and, and five minute games. Totally. Totally. What, what, what makes you feel what, like, do you feel optimistic or like, how, how do you, how do you think about optimistic the future? Optimistic is such a strong word. word. <laughs> what, where, where, what do you find interesting or intriguing? Young people, I'm finding them intriguing. Uh, young people taking Friday off from school to actually do the work. They're, they're playful. And I'm, I guess I'm finding it right now in more in art and theater and weirdness. Mm. I feel like they're the ones who understand the sort of the liminal spaces between things and can see the, the weird values. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm interested and I've heard buzzings now that people wanting to become chief, chief ethics officer mm. at different companies. And just that someone could even utter that and not get laughed out of the room now compared to 10 years ago. Yeah. That's kind of hopeful to me. And then people wondering, well, if I was going to be chief ethics officer, what would I have to know, you know? <laughs> and will anyone listen to me? Right. <laughs> or are you not brought to the real meetings? You're brought to the meetings right. after the decision has already yeah. been made. I mean, I'm excited by uh, Trevor Schultz and the platform cooperative movement to yep. see. Yep. It has grown into something from yep. something very little. Yeah, there's going to there's gonna be some real world tests of that where we can see where that goes. There's a, there's a service I work, I'm like advising, working with now called Ampled, which is Patreon for musicians, but it's a co-op platform. And so it's going to be the musicians, every musician who has at least X, you know, supporters will have a share in the company. Even if you have a million supporters, you still have one share in the company. Oh, that's sweet. The board will be 70% musicians, you know, and so they're, it's like trying to break the ownership mold and trying to create a new, a new paradigm, right. a new structure into, you know, that, that remains the holy grail, I think. The platform um, cooperative. The you platform know? cooperative. Yeah. And so I feel like that. You got to do it from scratch, kind yes. of. It's almost impossible to pivot to it. Are you a UBI person? I mean, I was, I mean, originally I was one of the first people writing about it back in the day. I wrote this piece 
for God, it was CNN. It was when Obama was running for president, first time, and everyone's talking about jobs, jobs. I'm going to create jobs, and I wrote this thing saying, "Who really wants a job? You know, <laughs> isn't that kind of ass backwards? If there's work to be done, then yeah. we can do it. But the idea of creating jobs for people just so we could justify giving them stuff that's already in abundance seems kind of ass backwards." So maybe we should just give people the stuff, you know, and then I got into the UBI and all. And then I was really pro UBI and wrote about it and throwing rocks to Google bus. Then I was giving a talk at Uber and I was complaining to them about their exploitative practices and all that. And then some guy got up and said, yeah, but what about UBI? I was like, oh, UBI is an excuse for the corporations yeah. to pay non-living wages to their I feel drivers? Like it's, I feel like it's the solution of our of the financial maximization age. Like even the left is in on it. Just throw money at it. Just throw money at it and then we absolve ourselves. Right. You know, and, and it I, doesn't really I don't think it really does that. I I, I envision society that's focused on providing for our now me needs, like the bottom two rungs on Maslow's hierarchy, just safety and uh, security and that including financial security. But I think, you know, I don't think that comes exactly through a UBI. I mean, I do, I like jobs. I like work. I, I feel like there's lots, like the notion that we're running, that we're going to run out of jobs or work to do, I think is crazy because I don't think we're doing the actual work that needs to be done. Right. If we're doing industrial agriculture that's destroying the topsoil, it means, well, we need more hands on deck there to do it'll, different processes. I mean, it'll sound absurd, but you know, if 50 million people were hired to plant trees tomorrow. Like where does that put us in 15 years? You know, what does that look like versus where we are now? Why is that not a job? Like, I feel like there's just a limited conception of work. We think of work as what will create financial value, but what if work is about creating value in general? Right. Now, where does that money come from? Well, you know, let's raise taxes and let's use that money right. to pay people to do what needs to be done. Right. And it's interesting when you say financial value, it doesn't even mean market value. Right. In other words, is it is it of value to those who want to financialize the system? Is it of value to those who are gaming the economy right. for extractive purposes? Just instead, does it add, does it add to our collective appearance? <laughs> does it does it extend our ability to be in the game? You know, does it does it extend our lives? And that I don't know what the how many conceptual steps it is for us to get there uh, to feel like that makes sense. But, you know, I don't know. That feels so clear to me. Yeah. I mean, there's some sections in the book where you're talking about kind of keeping track of value as it moves through a system. And the place I always get scared of going is this sort of Jaron Lanier dream of we'll have a blockchain that's going to measure every single thing that everyone does that's a value to someone else and then somehow compensate them for it. And I always think about like, you know, when I get out of bed, that if I get out of bed on the left side, that's valuable to CERTA, right? So then I'm going to optimize my getting out of bed each day to maximize the amount of data I'm giving to the mattress company. And it's it's a strange world. It is. I mean, I, I was not a, I was not a data driven CEO. <laughs> you know, I was, a, I was a field driven CEO. Yeah. Um, but if I imagine there being like a, like a wide scale improvement to certain values, I feel like that, that can either happen from people like getting woke the same way or becoming moral in the same way, which seems like a hard sell yeah. or it becomes, it just turns into some, a mundane, rational, if not metric, then reason that we're all sort of agreeing to. And it does get into a dangerous place of measuring everything if, if gone too far. But I still, I think that there is some space in between there. I'm reading a book right now called time loops by Eric Wargo, which Mm. argues for, um, like how retro causality and premonition and like us being able to see the future is a real thing and makes this case from like a physics standpoint, why Mm. it is and talks a lot about, 
you know, what happens when we try to measure molecules, that molecules change their behavior when they're measured. Right. right? And, but instead they found ways to lightly measure things. If you agree from the beginning, if you decide that you will not be, you will not maximize accuracy, it's possible to gather much more information. So they have all these soft tools where it's like, the molecule doesn't know it. It doesn't think it's being measured and you're not <laughs> directly measuring it, but by doing it for a long enough time in an aggregate, you are able to learn a ton, Right. but it's about just like the size, the scale that you get. Um, so I think of like that style of measurement as being more ideal. Now what the it's reality like could, of that is, I don't it's know. It's great. But, I mean, but you could explore new worlds and actually live true to the prime directive. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally, totally. That's, that's what Bezos is trying to get us to, right? Our Star Trek worlds. But the idea that, yeah, so then you're observing the future or the past without. Yeah. You don't have to move that ashtray that changes the whole fate of... Yeah, it's it's wild. It's a great book. But then the majority of people, say, who listen to this show are not steering startups. They're running bakeries and bike shops. And I think, well, most of them, if they listen to this show, they're trying to do it from the future us yeah, totally. perspective totally. and treat their workers well. But if you treat your workers well, you, your margins go. And then one bump in the road, one truck breaking down, one person getting sick when they're supposed to come into work throws the whole business back for a month. You know, it's hard out there for little people. My oldest best friend runs a coffee roasting business in rural Virginia. And, uh, and, the desire to like see yourself at the same level as the big players to like learn from how, you know, the biggest, your biggest competitors do things is strong. But again, I return to this idea that like success is just, is just lasting. Staying true to that notion of success is a daily challenge because there are things that go wrong. There are a million distractions. There's a million messages telling you this is not what success is. And things, these things become a grind. Like after me doing Kickstarter for 11 years, 12 years, I was exhausted, you know, it's hard. And that's the main thing. The main messages I'm getting from people are they are exhausted. Yeah. One more thing, one, you know, worker got sick and this, and then I'm trying to support the worker, but even the health insurance company won't pay what they should. And I can't even get a tax deduction for, paying for my workers medical needs and so people who are trying to do it truly right they get so fatigued and so you know pardon fucked by the way the rest of it works well you know what i what i would most desire for those people and what i was eventually able to find with kickstarter is i I, I would want them to be able to connect with a community of people like them and so that you learn that like you're not you're not the fucked one you're not the broken one. We're all in a similar pl- similar place. You know, the ability to like learn from your experience by watching someone else go through something similar is tremendous because it's always easier to solve someone else's problems than your own. It's a- it's always easier to give love to someone else rather than to give love to yourself. And when you're in isolation and you feel like every storefront around you is becoming a Dwayne Reed or a TD Bank and everything online is ads for like the e-commerce versions of what you do. I mean, and every farm around you is a big agra general foods, yeah, you know, like monstrosity. What are, yeah. What are you, what are you holding 
holding on? Are you just holding on? Or are you still building something? Do you still have right. value? And, you know, the last, the last decade has not, has not been good for those folks. And, you know, I write in the book about how the entrepreneurship rate has plummeted over yeah. the last 40 years. It's plummeted the same rate as the smoking rate has dropped over the same time span. That despair, you know, that despair, that discouragement is brutal, is brutal. I think there's victory in just living. There's victory in survival. But I... Right. No, I guess it is that if you can, at the end of every day, we made it another day. I know that it's doesn't like my feel grandma, like a lot, but isn't that what life is in my general? My grandma would say that every morning. Ah, I woke up. I didn't, th- <laughs> totally, <laughs> I didn't think totally, I had another totally. day. <laughs> nothing bad. Ha- She'd nothing be surprised. too bad happened today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like enough, but like what more are we owed or given than that? And, right. even, and even if you think about these things, like I remember, you know, having great, great years at Kickstarter, epic years, you know, everything went right. But you know what? Then the next year starts and then you're having to build off of what was in a great year. And like, you're already kind of behind because you're like, well, can we do all that again? Like, <laughs> and like, what's a year then? What's a year? Like, why, what does that really mean? And so these are ways that we create, you know, organize ourselves. We motivate ourselves, which are helpful and are like, are not on their own bad things, but they're also abstractions. And, you know, I don't know that they're always, always helping us. No. And there's, I mean, when you live in a system like we do in this financialized capitalist nightmare system, there's every single day or every hour, there's more temptations to just, Oh, just give in to one way or the other to just cut that corner or do that thing. Yeah. It doesn't matter anyway. It's just me. It's just me. Like the onion headline that said, throwing this, throwing this plastic bottle away won't matter. Say 9 billion people at the same time or something like that. Yeah, totally. Right. Because, but at the same time, it's not fair what we do. I wrote about this in present shock. You're in the street. You got your plastic bottle. There's no recycling bin around. And it's like now the 10,000 year future of this bottle is resting on my shoulders. <laughs> it's like, damn, I just needed water. I had to take my friggin' pills. Yeah. And now I've got this 10,000. All right, I'll carry it. I'll crush it. I'll carry it with me. I'll do whatever. But it is weird how much weight then gets put on every little decision, which isn't fair either. It's a, it's because we have the systemic problem here, not individual. But but the ability for change to emerge, it, like it starts on an individualistic level that grows, right? I mean, the, these things grow. One of the things I write about in the book is the history of exercise. Right. That weirdly exercise, as we think of it today, was invented in the 1960s, you know, People had run before, but the need to exercise to lose weight uh, had to be invented because of television. In 1950, there were a million TVs in the U.S. In 1960, there were 50 million. And President-elect Kennedy wrote an essay in, the Wall- in, in Sports Illustrated called The Soft American, saying like 10 years ago, we all passed physical fitness tests. Now no one does. And what's the reason? It's television. We've, we've, life has become too leisurely. So we instituted a national priority to exercise. Right. And, and I remember and, President Johnson is the one who started the exercise in elementary schools yeah. where you had to be able to do 50 pull-ups. In, ni- in 1967, Strom Thurmond was arrested for running outside in South Carolina because running was so strange that police assumed that he was running from a crime, right? But ex- exercise, exercise emerged to solve the new problem of like America getting fat. So we're now like 60, 70 years into modern exercise. And, and if I think of it that way, it's like kind of an amazing growth trajectory. And this started with small pockets of people that became institutionalized and formalized through government. And then gyms got created. You know, the Bill Bowerman wrote the book about jogging and then created Nike. Like there are all these 
things that came together uh, with what started as something quite small. I don't feel like individual actions are meaningless, and and especially if they're created in a way that you're imagining how other people might also do them. And the ability for a movement to grow from nothing is tremendous, but it just operates the same way as like a compound interest growth rate, where it starts small, but the it adds up over time, and there's a moment where suddenly things take off because it's just the base has gotten big enough and change and new ideas can be contagious. Um, so so to, instead of getting flabby from television, we've gotten incoherent from digital technology, right? right, right We're destabilized, right. desocialized, alienated. Right, right. And so a solution like the same way Thomas Kuhn will write about how the need, how paradigms breaking down creates the need for new paradigms like that make new sense mm-hmm. of life. And then when a new paradigm exists, then there's a new period of what he calls normal science, which is decades of people trying to apply this new paradigm to the world, discovering how's it functional, how's it not functional. And through that changing and his, him and he's talking about how changing how scientists view their work, but it's really, I think changing behavior operates the same way. Our ability to collectively evolve, I think we underestimate. And partially we underestimate it because the forces around us seem so powerful and it's like, well, anything you do will get sucked into some, I don't know, something that will destroy it anyway. But our capacity to evolve and grow, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm saying I'm team human, uh, but, <laughs> but just that we, you know, our, our, our ability, our to change and evolve. And I think we, we greatly underestimate it because so much seems stacked against us, but, but there are moments of clarity and there are moments in time that create huge opportunities. Right. And then if you can somehow hang on to that long enough to engage with another person, it's contagious. Yeah, exactly. Coherence is contagious in a certain way. Yes. Yeah. So like with Bentoism, I'm trying to follow through on the same idea. I've been teaching workshops out of my house and doing Zoom calls where I teach people how to find, how to build their Bentos, how to discover their values. We go through practice creating Bentos together. I, I have people who don't know each other pair up to share their bento and to talk through a life question. And watching that is amazing because someone will, someone will read out from their bento. Okay. Here's my now me values are this, my future me values. Are, they'll say that they'll say it out loud. The other person will listen. They'll talk about it. Then that person who shared their bento will say, okay, here's a question I'm thinking about. Here's a, should I question? And they'll say the question and then they'll start to you know reason out what they're thinking. And inevitably what happens is that person will, talk themselves into some corner of what they think they already are and what's possible and what's not. And the person who just listened to them define their bento will say, Hey, but you just said you're about this. Like you just said, you're about that. Like you are, you are more than the story of what you're telling. Mm. And there's this power of having yourself reflected back to you from another human being who's really listening to you. And then you, you switch roles and, and you get to hear someone else and, there's a click moment where people, people discover what it is to be self-coherent. Like there mm. is a, we all know when we're in that flow state of like, Hey, this is like everything about me feels right right now. You know, yeah. what is that? Is it, you know, is it just doing a lot of drugs? Is it you know, <laughs> having a great seat to the show? Like, what is it? But no, we can have that in a lot of places. So I'm mm. trying to make this contagious. I'm trying to put it in people's hands. There's probably 70 practicing, practicing Bentoists right now. Uh, I've been doing it for a year. You know, I'm imagining, uh, my, my, the path here is I think there's an organization to be created that is promoting an expansion of self-interest and expansion of value, uh, in, in organizations and institutions. And it's also like 
giving grants, funding the normal science of trying to define new way, like these new values, these new ways of seeing where we operate, the spaces that today we find so hard to see. But I'm, ba- I'm basing, I'm trying to model this off of like what I read from Kuhn, what I've seen from how past sort of past changes have happened. I don't know, just, just trying to be a practical utopianist. <laughs> you know, I don't, that might be impossible, but like, but yeah, if we if we really want to dig out from where we are now, like what what are the steps? Change is not a sprint, um, but change is also not a marathon. It's a relay. Like we all are running a leg. Even if I'm successful, I probably won't happen in my lifetime. Uh, so how do I feel about that? Well, I was thinking about this. I was at an art gallery and I saw this Caravaggio painting, and it's like this monk hunched over a, a you know a book, a really thick book, and he's writing. He looks so tired, and sitting on the other page of the book is this skull. And I looked at that and thought, that's the last, that's the last guy. That's the last, you know, man or woman who was there doing that. And there's someone waiting on, you know, out of frame, the next monk waiting there. And like, and, and when I imagined like, what if, what if this idea of bentoism and and this new way of thinking about value and self-interest, if that's the same for me. And I felt liberated by that idea because I thought, you know, then I'm, this is truly in service. This is truly like, I don't know, really, really trying to get it at, at the right kind of questions, I think. And also, you know, we don't have to run the whole race. Like you, it's even an if you're not the one across. Anyway, yeah, so yeah. what are you going to, if you want to be the finish line? Yeah. I just What's want the, the photo op. I just want yeah, the, yeah, yeah. But well, that's the whole thing. I feel like the finish line mentality is what's making the world want to end. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's gonna totally. be here for the fireworks. We want we want the freeze the sitcom freeze frame moment where the credits roll and it's like, congratulations, yeah. you you have won. But the only way to do that is to end the whole damn thing. Yeah. Well, it's like I don't know if you ever played the Civilization games, but yeah. at a certain point you get bored and you're just like, you know, fast forward a thousand yeah. years. The idea that we each are running a leg of a bigger race, that we need the energy of new people, we need the passion, that we we don't all have infinite supplies of those things. I look at that with love and I say everything that we're able to give is tremendous and we should, you know, we should be commended for it, but we can't all give all the time and, and making room for the next person, the next generation like that, that is the only just way to think. I think that's the only reasonable way to think. Yeah. Well, especially if it's UBI, right? There's not enough work. So I'll share, (laughs) I'll share some of the work (laughs) with others. I know you're also, as I am, you're highly involved with Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. What's giving you hope in, in the Extinction Rebellion movement right now? You know, outside the U.S., I think I think their strategy is really working. I mean, their their theory of change is to get three to four percent of the population to engage in acts of civil disobedience, and that will flip the script. And after one year of actions in the U.K., they're at 0.9 percent of the British population has engaged. That's amazing. That's amazing in just a year. You know, it's messy and it's complicated, and people have a lot of complex feelings about it. Yeah. I was there in London when they were people glued themselves to the tube and yeah. like, and in the movement that was like a, is this right or wrong kind of thing? It's a hard, a hard question. Getting to talk to them and getting to know them and working with some of the leaders there. I'm amazed by really like the compassion I feel for everyone. You know, I love that they're a post blame, post shame organization that like we are, we all are born in this world. We all participate in it. None of us are, are completely outside of it. And so we must be compassionate towards ourselves and our future selves. And, you know, they've even explained to me that the sort of disruptions of life that have happened in the UK 
yes, it's about raising awareness for global warming, but there's also part of it that's like preparing for the British public for the moments when things do stop working. You know, right now it's a, it's a momentary action by an environmental right. group, but in the future it's going to be, these are existential crises. Right. Three and weeks blackout. Yeah. There's a way in which they think they're kind of starting to prepare people for the idea that normal just, it's not happening. Like normal is California now. Right. And so the notion of when will the fires go out in California? It's like, well, that just might be what California is. And so I find that level of thinking to be, it just, I find it very moving and, and I connect with it very deeply. And in one of their videos, you know, one of the founders talks about like they lay out their theory of change in the plan. And she's like, I know this may sound ridiculous and like her eyes are wet. And she says, but honestly, we don't have any other ideas. And so I feel like this is our best, our best selves really stepping up and showing great care. XR wants to build the biggest tent possible. Like it's really, they don't want to be left to right. They want to be just like the, pro the future, pro our children. And in the UK, in New Zealand, in Canada, in Germany, like many of these places, huge, huge impact. And like people really getting on board. But the US, I mean, US, we can't get out on the streets for like, uh, a threat that's right in front of us, much less one that's coming down, yeah. you know, within a decade. I continue to be an optimist about human beings. I think we do the best we can with what we know and the degree to which the perspective on the climate has changed in the past year, thanks to XR and Greta is incredible. And I'm one of those people, you know, I right. went from, of course, I believe in things, but not it being an active part of my mind to now like, I think about it all the time. Yeah. It factors into every choice I make now. Like I feel I have a new re I have a responsibility that I didn't think of before. I feel energized and empowered by that. And as the father of a young child, like I, if I can look him in the eye years from now, like, you know, it, it has to be with me knowing that I, I did what I could to protect him. But for now, it looks like the only thing we can do is vast reduction yeah. of consumption. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's where Extinction Rebellion will run, I think, into its bigger problem is, I mean, the idea is we create citizens councils that create binding decisions on behalf of all of us. So they might decide with a binding conclusion, no more air conditioning unless you have a desperate medical condition. And people are going to freak the frick out. Yeah. Because then it's like almost like fascism to them. You know, in the Netherlands, which is a Calvinist society, so it's already like kind of, you know, pitched this way. There have already been these things where like Ziploc bags don't exist and, you know, you're limited to a certain amount of trash per week. And those sorts of rules and ways of being have been put into place and have been accepted because sort of they're culturally prepared to be accepted and people don't view it as draconian when that's right. happening on a global level, yeah, it's going to get harder and weirder. But you need we now people to be yes. able to do that. I don't know what gets the U.S. there. Um, team Human is what gets us there. there you if go. they can think of them, that's what people keep asking. How do I get to be on Team Human? It's like, you're on Team Human. <laughs> <laughs> Are you human? Come you're pick up your card. <laughs> it's already here. <laughs> We've got it ready for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask you about the title of the book. I'm guessing that before you came up with this could be our future, you went through a few other tenses, mm. right? This should be our future. This will be our future. This can be our future. Mm. Did you think about all of them or did it should, was should just the one or no, could, could, just no, the one. could I, I possible. I was riffing on the title of a Minutemen song and a great book by Michael Lazarus. This band could be your life. It's a beautiful book and song. It's very hopeful. And it's just sort of like, a universalizing of a very generous, beautiful perspective. And honestly, it came with like, I had to put a title on my, <laughs> on my proposal and it was like the least bad one. But the more I sat with it, the more I thought like, 
it's an invitation. It's about possibility. And, and I believe in those things. Like I, be, I believe in the possibility of mass movements. And, and, and so this is hopefully the, the, friend, the friendly opener that, that helps us get there. Well, thank you, Yancy Strickler, for being on Team Human. All right. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the founder of Kickstarter and the author of This Could Be Our Future, Yancey Strickler. You can find out more about his work at whystrickler.com. You can find out more about all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also join the team as a supporter. Team Human is produced right here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism by Joshua Chapdelin and edited in a secure bunker deep beneath the city of London by Luke Robert Mason. Our community manager is Michael Bass and our patron saint is Stephen Bartolome. You can read my monologues as well as the entire Team Human manifesto on Medium at medium.com slash team human or go there to subscribe to Rushkoff and you'll be alerted of anything and everything. I've also got an email list you can subscribe to at rushkoff.com. Thank you for being on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.